Okay, I think we have just about everybody that is supposed to be here. Some of people will show up at another point. Um, any announcements? None. Let's uh, wait for that truck to go by. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your son's ministry here on earth, and we're grateful for this weight of his sermon. In your son's name, amen. Um, we're in the uh, third week on the Sermon on the Mount, and I, 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 haven't, I don't think I've said this yet in the two weeks. Um, the Sermon on the Mount is full of some great things that you could spend time getting much benefit from. You can also get much error from jumping into the Sermon on the Mount in a single place, because if you don't answer the question we answered the first week, which is what is Jesus up to in the sermon, uh, to help you, and you go back to study any of these things, like the Lord's Prayer, which is tonight, uh, you would have uh, a certain uh, misalignment unless you had some, if you came to some conclusion, and I encourage you to do so. You might not agree with my conclusions about it, but it seems that it holds together as a, a transitional message to the Jews who were not re regenerate about what the new covenant was going to be. And he was raising the intensity of the law in the end of chapter 5 uh, in ways that it could only be answered by the heart. And you have to realize that we're, we're dealing, we're religious people. We're going to somebody's house on a Wednesday night in the heat, eating stuff and because of religion. Um, and an awful lot of our religion, an awful lot of Christianity is um, tragically trapped in exactly what Jesus Christ forbade us to do. You know, it's, he basically talks about these basic things, murder, adultery, all these rest, that, that heart situation, you've got to resolve that. You can't address it by just obeying more incremental and deeply held laws. You, your heart has to be different. But a person who has a hard time with the rules, and I know a lot of people in the religion have a hard time keeping the rules, and they love that grace business because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And uh, so they just sort of figure they have a two-nature view of, of Christians, and they believe that, well, there's no way you can avoid sin, so disobeying the rules is, well, expected. How do they make up for it? I mean, how do you, when you don't keep the rules, how do you make up for it? This is what chapter 6 is about. Christ is um, really, really rude to the religious people, and I, I hope nobody here is offended by Jesus, um, because what religion is uh, you know what LARPing is, right? Live action role playing. That's what people are doing with religion. Piety, pious actions are the LARPing of a religion. You want to have the external look like you're part of this internal true thing, the kingdom of heaven. And he tells you, verse 1, beware of practicing your piety before men in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. It, it's like the, uh, you have heard it said, but I'm telling you, 
if you even look at a woman, if you're even angry with your brother, this has got, we can't have religion as we've always felt it to be. We can't have it be, and it could be very personal. You want to keep the rules personally, and you want to keep the piety personally. But Jesus Christ destroys the rule keepers and destroys the pious. He says, the reason you do pious actions to be seen by men is costing you your reward from God the Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give alms, sound no trumpet before you. Now, just as of this chapter, like the other one, you can see the, this law, this law, you've heard it said. He goes through all your standard pious actions. Giving to the church. Tithing, whatever you, giving to the ministry somewhere. Praying. Um, fasting. It's a, uh, these are things that people do to make themselves seem more religious. It's the language of religion. Because everyone knows that religious people pray. And everyone knows that religious people uh, are charitable, you know, philanthropic, uh, giving, tithing. They know that they, they fast uh, because they're really sincere. But how do they know we give and we fast and we pray? Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do, in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by men. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's taking the piety away from the virtue signal it functions as in a society, a proof, a proof of religion, a proof of life. We're trying to show other people. Um, we don't pass the plate at All Souls. Uh, maybe it's too much work. But I, I grew up in a church that did, and it's a little too easy for people to be seen. What they put in the plate. I've known people to make change, but... That didn't usually happen. We don't realize that you're functioning on one of two worlds. You're functioning as, am I being seen? Who's my audience? If I can't make my piety secret and have it be more satisfying to me because I am righteous before God, that I uh, give an almond in secret, your father who sees in secret, will reward you. But but all the LARPing is, is very traditional. But it says, as the hypocrites do, this is what hypocrisy is, is that it claims to be a relationship with God when it's a relationship, it's a language of the society you're in. If you're in a religious society, you have, you know, duties. And if you faithfully do the duties, you got the virtue signal, you, you get the Boy Scout, you know, merit badge, for this. What, um, what happens when, I mean, it's pretty awful. It's not just Christians. I mean, it's any secular help weekend. And you volunteer to go on this secular help weekend where old Mrs. Johnson's house got painted. And you did it for free. Except for the t-shirt that you get to wear. That tells everybody you did it. 
and tells you all the corporations that supported you doing it because they can't go on in life without this language that is horizontal, that is wanting everyone to get measured as virtuous. We want our reward from man. If you have to tell man you did it, you know what you thought of a guy in high school who had to tell everybody what great thing he did over the weekend because no one saw him do it. Because he needs to have them know. The, the only value in what he did is other people knowing. All the hypocrites. And when you pray, you must, be, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by men. Now, you ha might have different words for it. It's good for evangelism. Shut up. Being a better person would be good for evangelism. And a person who presents their prayers cannot, what does this go on to say? Truly I say to you, they receive their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is, the, this is a pattern. We've got pious actions that are either horizontal and present to the people you want to have here, or they are for your God, in which case, secrecy is just fine. You say, well, didn't you pray before the Bible study? Yeah, or before the meal. Even Christ thanked God at the Last Supper. He blessed the food. So you know that in certain circumstances, there are... Um, there's a little bit too much sounding the trumpet before them. It's too much of a, uh, oh, we've seen it in the recent woke years with the very virtuous signs that in front of various houses in many languages. People, or, or you know, uh, Black Lives Matter or something. And you just want to put a sign out front that says, in this house, we are more virtuous than you are. You know, just put it out there. Just say that. But, you know, it, it, it feels a little slimy. Of course, we can see it easily in others. But inside the church, we don't often see what we're about. Um, secrecy is a protection. It's, a, um, it's not that secrecy has to happen if somebody says, will you, just, will you thank God for this food? You say, sir, sure. Or I've got to go to a closet. I'll be back in a minute. We know that certain prayers are going to be said in the church. When it tells how women could pray or prophesy in the church, it assumes they're praying. We, we attend to certain things, the prayers for the needs of the church. But uh, we've all heard the guy who instantly goes into King James English when he starts to pray. And this is the second part of this instruction, verse 7. And in praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. There's that famous story. I think it was Dwight Moody, the evangelist. I'm not sure. And some famous uh, journalist would come to hear him and not a believer. Some local pastor got up there to do the invocation and would not stop praying. And Dwight Moody finally got up. If I'm right, if it was Dwight Moody, but this could be all mixed up. But the, the upshot of it was... The evangelist got up and says, as brother so-and-so finishes his prayer, let's turn to passage, you know, uh, and just stop the guy short. And the journalist was willing to listen to him because 
He stopped this religious posturing. Do we think we will be heard for length, um, beauty, cadences, rhetoric? Are we being heard for those elements? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> because man hears this that way. The hypocrites do this. The Gentiles, they've got no direction. They just think this is how prayers are done. But it says, do not be like them. And this is the correction. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now that just caused more problems than we realized it caused. Then why am I even in a closet? Because it suggests I should have short and direct prayers, right? Do not heap up empty phrases. So I'm removing all the detritus, all the, the, the effusive... We went through in the Jesus people days uh, some trend that everybody was had learned that you pray to the Father through the Son, and pretty soon every prayer was had just as many fathers as it had you knows and likes. You know, it was it was people were slurring the word Father by the end of the prayer because they were saying Father all the time, but they were violating this. They were thinking they would be heard for the right incantational approach. Christ. doesn't want to be represented by people who are functioning more on the horizontal than they are on the vertical. And the vertical has this assumption. God already knows. You don't have to say the story you're praying about. Yeah, I don't know if anybody ever been, been to a prayer meeting where it seemed like it was gossip. Yeah, let's pray all, all pray for poor Mrs. Jensen, who, and we fill in the blanks. Or if you'll, even if you think you're talking to God, you think you have to tell him what's up. So I've got to make it direct. I've got to make it simpler. But why do I pray at all? I mean, St. Saint, Saint, Saint Louis. Um, that's a town. St. Clive. Um, in his um, Problem of Petitionary Prayer. It's a good essay. It's one of those essays where Lewis says, I got it. I, I'm going to run this through. I don't know what I'm talking about. Gets to the end. I still don't know what I'm talking about. And, but he poses all the problems off this passage. God already knows what you need before you ask him. So doesn't he know what you need before you ask him? Why are you asking him? Well, not for information. You're not saying, Lord, Aunt Betty has cancer. Would you please extend yourself in grace to her? He knows Aunt Betty has cancer. He knows you care. Well, he doesn't quite know you care. Because if it doesn't come out of your mouth, it isn't the abundance of your heart. You speak what you believe, what you think is true, how much you feel. But all you need is the direct, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's if it came out of your mouth. Why does it say, if you confess Jesus as Lord, you will be saved? With your lips. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Because it is actually the only measure as to whether or not you believe that you want him to deal with it. It's like saying of your grandmother when she gave you socks for Christmas, again, and they say, thank your grandma. Well, she knows I'm thankful. Well, actually, she doesn't. 
It would take you thanking her, and actually some actual thanks in you, to be, you know, noticed by your grandma. You are informing God of who you are in relationship to the need, to the prayer. It does not have any reality until it crosses your lips. But it's still, still direct and simple. Pray then like this. I, the Luke account of the Lord's Prayer, it's a lot, slightly different structure, a little less uh, poetic than the Matthew. So we'll stick with the Matthew. But it says in Luke, pray then this. Like if you read Luke, you'd come away going, I've got to pray this prayer all the time. This is the only prayer I get. When you pray, pray then this. Pray then like this. Now, you know the prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some texts say, for thine is the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Not entire agreement as to whether, it's lovely, I like that ending, but it, it's not in all the manuscripts, so it seems like it might have been a tidying up the end of a prayer with end of prayer-isms. Um, but look at that. And you all know it. I mean, if you were in church and somebody, the priest up front, if he's a priest or a pastor, started the Our Father, the whole congregation would start right along, only to be maybe stumbling as to whether they say debts instead of trespasses. Because trespasses has that sibilant S that's really nice. Well, I can remember that hissing through the Southern Baptist Church when I was a little kid. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, trespass against us. It was, it was a vivid, convicting, but, but look at that. Just given, he said, I told you to pray simply, directly, not effusively, not long, um, not to be heard by others. And the problem is sometimes we would recite the Lord's Prayer corporately, sometimes to be heard by others. So others would hear me say these things. Not that God would hear me. It's our Father, which art in heaven. Who's, where's the location of the, uh, where's the direction? But look at these things. I mean, you, you almost couldn't get simpler and more direct. God is above. He is to be reverenced. His name is to be reverenced. Do you want the kingdom of God to be established? Now, let me back you off from that excitement that leafed in your breast because you could have a variety of views of what it would take to bring about the kingdom of God because a lot of people want it on earth and want it their way. It's thy kingdom, not our kingdom, our vision of your kingdom. Wouldn't it be neat if our kingdom could do this, that, and the other thing? The disciples were much like that. Don't you want us to go condemn these people, call down fire from heaven on them? Lord's looking at him like, are you out of your minds? Do you not know what my kingdom is? It's thy will be done. His kingdom, his, his will, on earth the way it is in heaven. Though that those faithful agents in heaven, 
keeping the Lord's will, his kingdom functioning in whatever politic heaven runs on. I think it's a monarchy. You can't get more, again, short, direct, figure out how to write. I don't like Hemingway, but he had short, choppy sentences. Figure that out. Just Lord forgive. Lord have mercy. Um, we tend to want to sweat. I had a friend who felt he couldn't have prayed unless he actually sweated drops of blood, like Christ did in the garden, which I think was a bit more important prayer time uh, in history than our prayers. Give us this day our daily bread. There's a, uh, uh, an expectation, a request, and a, uh, a presumed thanksgiving. And it's, uh, interestingly, I was thinking about this when I was working on the notes. That's pretty mundane. Uh, another friend, missionary friend uh, who'd been missionaries with in, in Japan, and we met him again in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and and he was on a church board. Some crisis had come up, and somebody said, maybe we should pray about it. And this missionary friend said, has it come to that? Has it gotten that far that we have to pray about it? Because we're affluent America. I've got a 401k. I have insurance. I don't need my daily bread. For heaven's sake, I'll just run down to Rose Hours pick up whatever variety of bread I want. And it might be good for us to remember that we are asking God's provision all the way down to the mundane. Yes, you could pray for the nation. Yes, you could pray for your leaders. You could pray for Aunt Betty and her cancer. But don't forget to pray for the provision you have. Remember the rich fool made presumptions about what he had. He didn't have tomorrow. You ask God each night when you put your head on the pillow, Lord, give me tomorrow. We assume a lot of mundane, obvious things, but if you want tomorrow, don't presume tomorrow. If you want your bread, don't presume it. We should say, if God wills, I'll do thus and such. It's boasting to make claims about tomorrow, it says in James. It's presumptuous, it says in James. Don't forget those mundanities. We often, the things that our Western affluence has provided to us, we have stopped praying about, and so we're left in many cases with our highly wrought emotionalisms or highly wrought wants. Praying for what we want. Not a problem to make your request known to God. Just don't forget that your religion isn't the leftover. Even if it's the top leftover, the things that your power can't reach. And then comes the ugly one. Forgive us our trespasses or debts. Okay, we're, we're good with that. Christianity's about that, right? You, you repent of your sins. Repent and believe the gospel. You turn aside from your sins. Christ died to save sinners. That's what it's all about. The second part of the line is the ugly one. As we also have forgiven our debtors. 
hold me. Next week, there's a passage about judge not, lest you be judged. This is sort of a preceding element to that. When I, when I pray, remember that all this is about Christ leaning into the Jews about the state of whether or not this religion is in them at their heart, at their ultimate, at their center. They wouldn't even ask for forgiveness if they did not understand forgiveness. You remember the parable, right, about the uh, guy who owed the master too much and he was forgiven and he choked out the other servant that owed him 25 cents? What's that mean? It means everyone likes, everyone likes to be forgiven. If I forgave you, you know, whatever you did to me, I'm sure it was something. Everybody likes that. Oh, God, that's nice to be forgiven. But when we are the objects of the sin or we are the person who's hurt by the sin, we are really bitter. We're really unforgiving. And all it's saying is, Lord, forgive us just like we forgive. Don't forgive us any more than we forgive. Is there anybody? If you love the God of grace, if you love the God of mercy, if your heart has been turned towards him, not just another typical religious performance, which the church is filled with bitter people, it was my father's whole ministry, I think. Digging up bitter people. And it was amazing who was bitter. We can't, we can't claim the heart. The whole idea is where do we get, Christ is telling them, this is the lay of the land in this religion that follows me. The law is functioning this way, all the way down to your emotions about the person. The piety is this way. You don't get to do it in front of people. You don't get to grandstand. It's got to be with integrity. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, as far as I'm aware, I'm not a scholar about these sorts of things, but that the word temptation is often the same. It's the word trial. You get that in James and John, I think. Um, so either way, you take it either temptation to sin. We know that we're not tempted by God, for he himself cannot be tempted. He himself tempts no one. So lead us into temptation is the opposite. No, we don't want him to lead us into temptation. But he might be, if it was moral temptation, he might be leading us into circumstances where we would be tempted. We, he needs us to go someplace where we wouldn't want to be, but deliver us from evil. Or it could be the trial aspect, that both the word evil is not necessarily the word for sin, it's the word for calamity. You could look it up, might not be in this situation, but from what I, um, my memory, which is not great, but, but it could be saying, lead, don't lead us into trials with calamity. Asking God to preserve the peace of your life. Now, the, the, the briefness of this, this is, I once taught a Bible study on cutting down on your prayer life. And uh, this, of course, was one of it. And I, um, in Ecclesiastes, there's this great passage, Ecclesiastes 5. 
Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you upon earth, therefore let your words be few. When I have the heart belief, back to the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. You art in heaven. Do I, does that have any meaning at all? I mean, we know we're talking about a God, we know, Yahweh, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Is he just occupying some portion of your confession, some portion of your creed, or is he occupying some portion of your cosmos? If he occupies some place of your reality, the fact that you would be in the presence, in prayer, of a God, in other words, talking to the God, not talking to your neighbors, and you hallowed his name, that means you kept it sacred, you kept it reverenced. God is in heaven, and you're on earth, so shut the heck up. But I've got to tell God, so well, tell him briefly. And it's not that he's um, unwilling like some pagan deity or some oriental monarch. What's the uh, old Chinese thing, the kowtow, which is the nine obeisances and the twelve prostrations, where you virtually have to lick the floor of the, the throne room all the way up to the, you know, the, the king, the khan, or whatever they call him. We're not, we're not groveling. We have access to the Father. We have access to um, God the Father through the Son. Um, he intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us, Romans 8. We know we've got uh, a relationship, but what is in your heart will affect what you're... This is, remember, I don't want you looking at these, any of the rules on the chapter 5, or any of this construction in chapter 6, as, okay, this is what i got to do now. Okay, how many words was that, honey? Did I pray too many words? Did I say too much? Did I, was I too familiar? Pray your heart. Get your heart right. Pray what do you think of your God in heaven and hallowed is his name. Do you think, not that I'm only allowed to say 12 words, but that's what I would say because he already knows what I need. I, he just has to hear me say it. He has to hear me cry out to him. He is close to me. He carries my burdens. But remember, it's not just his opinion of you. Your opinion of him should affect what you do when you pray. And when you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites. There's those hypocrites. I didn't make it red all the time. I was getting tired of that. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. Remember, there is some, for being disobedient in this, it's not that you're not getting something. All sin, all folly, all wrong has a reward. It's where did I go to get it? Where did I go to collect this benefit? But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, 
but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. But oh my gosh, if I wash my face, the ashes on it of Ash Wednesday, my Lenten observance, won't be seen anymore. But you can post it on Facebook. But, you say, tradition has told us, now, I don't mind if you fast at Lent. Knock yourself out. Just don't tell me. And don't formally, ritualistically, piously put a mark on your face so we can be sure to know that you gave up TV or Starbucks for Lent. If you want to give up Starbucks for Lent, do so. Don't even look for a moment like you gave it up. Don't let anyone find out. Because remember, secrecy is the test of your piety. Are you doing this before God and for God? Or are you doing this as part of the church? And we're all getting together and supporting each other in disobedience. Now, in verse 19, which seems, there's a bit of a sense of a change of topic, but do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now that, that last line there helps us anchor ourselves and not just a helpful hint says, do it secretly, you'll know if you're willing to do it. You'll know if you're doing it for God. But here, it lets you know how you can be sure where your heart is. If Evan is saying, the Sermon on the Mount is increasing the pursuit of God into heart levels that only the New Covenant can provide. It goes back to where my treasure is. Remember, the Gentiles, the hypocrites, all were doing everything they did in the previous three paragraphs to be seen by men. It's all horizontal. That was where their treasure was. Surely, they have received their reward. If that's what they treasure, that's where their heart will be. How important is it for you to be seen as religious, righteous, faithful by others? It's not wrong to be seen as righteous, faithful by others. But that's just the end effect of what it is to be righteous. Christ was seen as righteous, but he wasn't out there performing his pretenses. So in some ways, when I looked at that, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. It's not only money. Money is just a, a standard medium of exchange. It's how I take value from me, walk over to you and buy a pack of gum. Okay, you've got the pack of gum, cost a dollar, I give you a dollar, you give me the gum, we transfer, we have this negotiated settlement. We understand it measures things. We talk about monetization, how is something measured monetarily. But all these other languages are also things treasured. And wherever your treasure is, by whom and where is your paymaster, that's your heart. If you're walking 
What's it say in, in Jeremiah when it announces the new covenant? Jeremiah 31. You shall not say to your neighbor, know the Lord, for, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. If you are in Christ, you have this knowledge of God and contact with God in all the paths of piety, your almsgiving, your prayers, your fasting. All of those have a reality if you know the Lord. And it's only by the temptation of the church or temptation of the world in some way to move our religious Christian actions over into that seen-by-men category. We start to move where our treasure is and our heart stops being in Christ. Then it says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. This is, I think Christ is on the whole idea of what I was saying, uh, um, that Christ is laying the groundwork of what the new covenant requires of us, that only the grace of God through the Holy Spirit can provide to us. And so he's drawing these pictures of uh, what the good will look like, uh, not as a new law, but as a, a, a righteousness only through grace. And uh, uh, the cost to failing to do it. They have received the reward. They'll have no reward from the Father who is in heaven. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. So, got that? This is the little round thing in your face, two round things in your face. So it's a miracle. I mean, it's a flat-out miracle that light waves bouncing off of everything focus through a lens on the back of your eye. You still don't see it. They have to give off an electrical signal to your optic nerve. It takes it back to the optical cortex. You can tell I talked to Dave Leach. He described it for me, the pathway. And you know, what is, give me a color here, more green. There is no green out there. That's all in your head. It doesn't become green till it reaches your optical cortex. It's just light waves that your God designed your mind to see green in those circumstances. And we all see it. I assume you see green. It's a great illustration. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, the whole body is full of light. That's what will your, your, almost your prime sensation in life. Could you do without sight? Being blind, I don't know. I wouldn't like to be mute, as you can tell. But uh, I really like seeing. Some of you would think hearing is more important. But if your eye is not sound, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness... How great is the darkness? This is part of the negative. That's sort of a kind of dowdy ching sort of stuff. How great is, if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Your sensations are your signal of evaluation. God has given you this sentence for you to take in. The eye sees but is never satisfied. The ear hears, but is never filled. 
we're constantly, we're pulling in more information right now, each one of us, than all the computers in the world could process. And you're processing it and dumping it out the back with a new signal coming in. The amount of data, the amount of signal. That's what we do. We have perception. This is about our religion. It's not about how we interface with the world through our eyes. It's about our religion. So you have to say, okay, if perception is the metaphor, if sight is the metaphor, and how blind are you? When he says that in another place, uh, when the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a ditch. You have, when you perceive, evaluation, decision. If you don't have the right one, this is the warning I think he's making about what he's been after with these, uh, these people who are pursuing God and disciples of him. They're coming to follow, here, listen to him on a mountain. And uh, he's talking to them, and he's turning it up to 11 on all these things. And then he says, if your perception's not good, how great is, if the light you are getting in is dark, how great is that darkness? You have to ask yourself, I mean, the calamity I, ha- I have when I can't see. You probably have non-Christian friends who just move from calamity to calamity. They don't know why they're this way. They don't know why it's this bad. Why am I so depressed? Why, am, why can't I find any satisfaction in life? Because it's just darkness coming in. They, 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 they perceive, but they don't evaluate correctly. Many Christians wonder why their Christian life isn't what it's supposed to be because we don't fully walk all the way into Christ. We don't see this as the nature of our faith, the nature of our God, the nature of the, what it becomes to us in heart. If I do not um, have it totally in heart, if I am double-minded man, it just creates more chaos. And then he says, no one can switches out his metaphor. No one can serve two masters. So he's, first he's telling you, are your perceptions this way? We've just been through a bunch of laws. We've just been through a bunch of pieties, none of which were working out for you. Don't do them by law. Don't do them by piety. Do the pieties and the, and the moralities from the heart. This has to do with how you see. And no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That's money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor about your body, what you shall put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Okay. Now this is, you know, I don't, I get into some arguments about the fasting stuff and my kick and lent down a flight of stairs. You know, so I don't like, I don't like the way it. But a lot of people are anxious. A lot of people. Jesus. Not, uh, not Jim Wilson. Not Evan Wilson. Jesus. Do not be anxious. Isn't life more than food? 
but I'm worried about food. Give us this day our daily bread. I thought I'd been praying that back there. I thought I was trusting God back there for the mundane. Oh, we might not trust God for it. We not pray about it, but it still scares the... You see a shortage? It was a kind of a murmur of the shortages. I go shopping with my wife. She says, where are all the water chestnuts? Because Winco used to have a lot of water chestnuts, a lot of brands. Now, it might not matter to you, but it matters to Leslie. And you'd hear it from other women. No, Leslie wasn't anxious about the water chestnuts. But uh, I don't know if any of you have thought about what if it gets worse? What if there's no gas? What if there's no bread? What if there's no rice? Isn't life more than food? And your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Now, Jesus is not just a passing, whimsical remark, uh, positively looking at a life free of worry. He's, he's kicking you around the, the, the schoolyard in this circumstance. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, this is a verse I often quote, which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his span of life? It doesn't work, and it's disobedient. Okay? And, but it's not something I'm asking you to stop doing. Because it's not again. We are, we are, sin shall have no dominion over us, because we're not under law, we're under grace. You've got to fix it the way Christ wants it fixed, which is you trust him. That's why you prayed, give us this day, our daily bread. This is why you pray to be forgiven. This is why you pray to not be led into temptation. Because you would like your God who you believe in, like he cares for the sparrows and the birds of the air, to have his hand, his eye watching you. Do you believe he is there? Until you believe, don't try to pretend not to be anxious. Don't go all stoic like I'm going to be a tough guy, and no matter what happens. Now, I, I mean, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I don't have many feelings, okay? So maybe I don't struggle with this. I understand that. But it's still on the page. I didn't write it in there. God wrote that 2,000 years ago. Which of you, by being anxious, can add one cubit to his span of life? Okay? Life is more than food. Life is more than clothing. And you'll get them. Well, this is what, first off, it's, it's coming at you like a freight train. You go, but I don't want it. Well, this is, this is where we find out whether our pieties are being lived for others, not God, whether our moralities are being lived for their simplicity and their overt external written code sort of obedience rather than true righteousness. We find out these things. We find out whether our anxieties, our fears, our worries... And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And we regularly go to Safeway and pick out a bunch of roses or flowers we like and put them in our house for four or five days and they slowly wilt. But why do we do that? Because fake ones aren't really that good. God just made this beautiful things that we can just set out instant beauty 
no matter how good your makeup goes on every morning, no matter how naturally beautiful you are, your average flower is more beautiful than you. It's more beautiful than what Solomon could do. It's more beautiful than, you know, any artist can do. And God has done it. The answer is that God has done it. Yet if God so clothes the glass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown also thrown into the oven, will he, will he not much more clothe you, O men of little faith? So that phrase, O men of little faith, this is God's doing. So there's where you got to go. You don't go. You don't go, Lord, forgive me of my anxiety. Lord, give me, you know, or... Or I'm not going to be anxious anymore and read a self-help book on not being afraid. You straighten it out with God. Who is your God? And, and you know, we're, this is Moscow. We have a largely intelligent Christian, broadly a Christian community. And a certain, I'm not post-millennial, but I'm probably more triumphal than post-millennialists. I didn't own a Triumph merely because it was the best bike made. But that's where you're looking. You're looking at my God. You're looking at your God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you're, and you're going to measure that. You're going to look at when I pray, when, where my righteousness is. Is my righteousness from the heart because of what God is? Is my piety from the heart and in secret before my God? because of who my God is? Is my anxiety relieved because of who my God is? It's omen of little faith. Therefore, this has been going on for quite a, we have 25, now we're in verse 31. We're just up to six verses uh, on this. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those rotten Gentiles, seek all these things. Everybody is after this. And we're learning, just like we learn to have our pieties, just like other religions, right on the surface to be seen by other people. We learn this from the Gentiles. We learn it from the hypocrites. We become more hypocritical than we become God-Christ-like. The Gentiles seek all these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. It is not you going, I am just going to become one with nature and wander barefoot through the Northwest serving the kingdom and letting God control everything. God knows you need your toast in the morning. That's why you pray for your daily bread. So you can have toast. God knows that you need them all. But seek first his kingdom. Remember you said thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You said that when you prayed that prayer, unless it was just piety for you. You just got the, the cred for saying it. You seek his kingdom and you seek his righteousness and all these things shall be yours as well. It's a matter of 
It's a matter of whether you trust your God in his world that he cares for you and that what happens in you will resolve the bread need, the bill payment need, the housing need, the clothing need. All those things will be solved by people who have sought his kingdom and his righteousness first. But you want to worry first, solve the problem first, make sure your treasures are sufficient so you can sit back in America and study the Bible. No, he wants you to seek his kingdom first, his righteousness first. These things are afterwards. These things are where you have co-opted the living God to provide your daily bread and your freedom from, from uh, temptation. It's a, uh, that's a dark eye. That's a blind eye. There's a, that's an eye with no light in it. You got to get your faith in him worked out. How much do you believe? When you're praying for something, how much do you believe that the Lord hears you and answers? Because you not believing, remember what it says in James, let him ask in faith with no doubting, who for the double-minded man unstable in all his ways, how can he expect to receive anything from God? God is a, um, I won't call him persnickety. He wants believers. He wants to be sought. He wants to be, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with every aspect of your being. That's the greatest commandment. Then your neighbor is yourself. He expects that attention from you. You know, recently, in the last next number of years, maybe five years, I've been on a kick about love being attention. Hatred is turning away. Love is turning towards. And how attentive you are to someone is how, I always quote the Chesterfield line, um, I never knew a man to be inattentive to a man he feared or a woman he loved. We're always attentive to the things that matter. And Christ is asking us to be attentive first to the kingdom and the righteousness. And if I fall back into pieties to replace the kingdom and legal observances to affect the righteousness, I've done it wrong. I'm not, I just jumped right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, didn't pay attention to what he was doing. All these things shall be yours. Says, well, you won't have to but maybe your fears are too great. Well, examine your faith. Don't examine whether this, you say, if you don't agree with Christ, I could, you know, a lot of people don't. Um, it might be a hard thing for you to face. It might be a hard thing for you to answer. But I think if you try not to break the bondage of anxiety, but you try to break the bondage of lack of faith, just say, do I believe in my God? Do I pray to him? announcing in the secrecy of my prayer that I believe that I'm praying past the ceiling. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. The, uh, the chaos of not seeing it this way um, 
the kingdom is different. Um, there is that... Uh, expectation that Christianity drives us, and this might be more information than you want, but there's a nowness to it. There is a proximate, close to you, now, ordinate, in other words, the kingdom first, the righteousness first, seek those things first. And the kingdom, it says in Luke someplace, 14? Somewhere in Luke. The kingdom of God is within you. People are looking for the kingdom out here. Now, the kingdom of God is within you. So know where the kingdom is you're looking for, and it is above you. Remember you said that, our, God, our Father who is in heaven. His kingdom done here, on, and his will done on earth as it is in heaven. We're having two places, in you and above. Do you know what those do to you when you deal with the above? Do you know what it does to you to have your Christianity be immediate, now, proximate, in you, right here, that you're loving the people in this Bible study, and then the people you go home with, and then the people you see to work tomorrow? Do you have the right measure of everything, where it belongs? Does God and his kingdom bring up the rear in your life where your religion, well, we are, our family ought to be involved in a church because kids need to get some, you know, ethics and such. And, and America is big on churches and steeples. Um, is that collateral effect of the life you decided to create? Or are you the collateral effect of the power of God? Things like don't being anxious for tomorrow will become very natural to you. It's not. But next week, more things. Um, the end of the Sermon on the Mount and some key passages. Um, so, hope you're all here. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for all that you do. We're grateful for this world we stand in that we take in with our eyes, we'd ask that we would evaluate all your purposes the way you want them evaluated so we can decide be transformed, be renewed, prove your will and rejoice in keeping it. Thank you for the hearts you gave us. In your son's name, amen.